This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Stuff by Joy Williams, which was published in The New Yorker in July of 2016. He suddenly felt that he could make anything appear in this room, anything he wanted. His father's rack of pipes, the bird's nest he had destroyed on a dare, anything. His old dog, breathing heavily in dream. This was a magic place. The story was chosen by Colin Barrett, whose debut story collection, Young Skins, won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and the Guardian First Book Award in 2014. Hi, Colin. Hi, Deborah. You know, when I first asked you to come on the podcast, it didn't occur to me that you would choose a story by Joy Williams. Um, Her work on a superficial level, anyway, seems at a far remove from yours. What is it that most excites you about her writing? Gosh, I mean, I I kind of only really encountered uh, Joy Williams' work probably only like three or four years ago. I really began reading her consistently. I was based in Ireland uh, up until last year. I don't think any of her collections were ever published in the UK, you know, so she wasn't widely known, even in part from a few short story connoisseurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, those several hundred of us that exist in in Ireland. Well, in Ireland, there's probably several uh, tens of thousands of them. But but you know, uh, in in obviously, she wouldn't be known by even pretty well read, you know, the, mm-hmm. the casual reader. Um, so I only really encountered her three or four years ago, maybe, and I'd kind of already written my first book, Young Skins. Um, I'd always been a fan of American writing. Silliest thing is to say because uh, it's such a broad church. But um, Tusker Rock Press uh, Publishing House in in the UK have brought out. Uh, it's kind of a compilation. It's like a mixture of her selected mm-hmm. and best of or whatever uh, called the Visiting Privilege, which is one of the stories in the collection. It has a good selection of her work from from her various volumes of, of short stories. Um, and I, I picked it up in a bookstore maybe three years ago. I think I've read the whole thing about three times now, at least. I've read some of the stories a dozen times. Um, just everything about her her voice, uh, her worldview, um, is just bewitches me. And uh, I press her on any any writer who, who hasn't heard of her. Um, reading her work is like getting some sort of master key. You know, it's like getting cheat codes to, to how to try and write mm-hmm. really great short fiction. I, I can see that there is some overlap between what you do and what she does. There's this certain sort of obliqueness or this way of getting from, from here to there without too much explanation or exposition. Yeah, yeah. Um, Basically, you don't just read them, you study them. But, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, she pulls off every trick in the book. What I really like about her is I guess she kind of she starts off at realism. She hasn't completely discarded realism uh, by any means, but... You know, realism is is just a set of aesthetic effects, you know, that we're habituated mm-hmm. to, and we've all agreed this is this is what a, re- a quote unquote realist story is. And a Joy Williams story tends to start off somewhere, somewhere in or around or adjacent to reality, but it quickly goes to its own place. It goes into a kind of pocket universe, uh, and I always I always enjoy that journey. And it's it's always every time, even when I'm rereading a story I've read a dozen times, it's I I, I still marvel at how she gets there. She wrote in in an essay, good writing never soothes or comforts. It is no prescription, neither is it diversionary, although it can and should enchant while it explodes in the reader's face. Um, Do you think that that this story stuff uh, explodes in your face? Yeah, I mean, it kind of does. I mean, it just, it, um, 
the Northern Irish poet Paul Muldoon said something about a poetry. He said um, it should sort of, it's like, I think I'm, I'm going to misquote him, but uh, he said the poet brings you to a party and then he kind of escapes out the bathroom window and leaves you there. <laughs> and um, she does something similar, yeah. uh, except it's not a party. It's some sort of interdimensional portal in 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 the desert or something um mm-hmm. she she brings you to very strange places uh, and uh, as she does in this story i mean it it starts out as one kind of thing and you think you're gonna you know you think again the, the raw materials of sort of conventional reality are there henry this guy who's this sort of small town community busybody you know mediocre writer um which is a station which would 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 generally get a guy killed in a in a, in a lesser <laughs> short story. You would deservedly die for the for the sin of being a, a mediocre small town writer. But um, that doesn't quite happen. But I mean, where <laughs> it goes is is astonishing, really. Well, maybe we should just dive in and talk some more after the story. And now here's Colin Barrett reading "Stuff" by Joy Williams. Stuff. It was December and he was in the windowless consultation room of his doctor's office. A young man with a stunningly high forehead was informing him that he had lung cancer and would die, the certainty of this being considerable, soon. The doctor was not familiar to Henry. The one he usually saw was at a baptism or a wedding that afternoon. Henry wasn't sure which, the information having been relayed to him by a receptionist hastily swallowing her lunch. He asked the young man with the intimidating forehead if he would kindly repeat what he had just said. The words were repeated, and Henry's first thought was that his own doctor had been too embarrassed to tell him. His second thought was that this was unlikely. I call them work sticks, Henry said, somewhat defensively. They're why I'm able to write so much. Really, what sort of thing do you write? I wouldn't have been able to concentrate without cigarettes. There you go then, the doctor said. I write a column for the community paper, the Zephyr. Every week I write a column. I have for years. I see, the doctor said. Henry wrote about the seasons. Companionable winter, radiant spring, mellifluous summer, and the tinglingly vivid fall. He wrote about hydrangeas, though he was wearying of hydrangeas, and twice a year he was depended upon to write about the equinox, The moment when a precise division between day and night occurs should not pass unnoticed. He wrote about screened porches and baked bean pots. He enjoyed a modest but loyal following as one of the town's steadfast and honourable lights. Only Yolanda Piper, Archon, intercessor, an indefatigable defender of the rights and needs of at-risk teens, particularly those suffering from anger issues, could be considered his peer. To do the heavy lifting of optimism and the good works necessary for the diffident functioning of the social contract. Funny name for newspaper. What, Henry said. Why? The doctor stared at him. You made it to 85. That should be a consolation. No, no, I'm not 85. It says, the doctor frowned, this sheet's been misfiled, sorry. Those girls at the desk, all they think about is getting laid. Bless them, Henry thought warmly. The doctor turned to a computer and tapped savagely on the keyboard for a few moments. You're 63, he reported. That's me, Henry cried. You have lung cancer as well. A bit more advanced, actually. The doctor stared at him again. Sorry about the mix-up. In the parking lot, 
Henry got into his car, put on his glasses, and harnessed himself into his seat. Click it or ticket. He was the little boy who had once bought an instructional record, How to Teach Your Canary to Sing. Now he was going to die. Only last year he had been on the cover of the telephone directory, looking kind, fit, and comfortable. This was an honour that continued to elude Yolanda and her group of thuggish youths. He had been supplanted this year by an artist's rendering of a new wind farm. Green pastures, sleek white blades, blue sky, a pleasing evocation of the extraterrestrial and the ecologically sound. Except that little appeared freshly green or white or blue anymore. Everything looked increasingly worn and shorn, though no one was saying anything about it. That's why his columns were still being tolerated. He wasn't bringing it to anyone's attention either. He'd researched the winds of the world for a column about the smoky sou'wester, and he liked to recount them silently when he felt a little low. Sirocco, Cordonazzo, Harmattan, Pampero, Levanter, Shamal, Simoon. The parking attendant wanted $21. Henry had crossed the uncompromising boundary between the first and second hour while he was idling in the lot, thinking about his canary record. He hadn't even had a canary. He had hoped to have a canary. He had the shameful urge to inform the attendant that he had just been told he had lung cancer and was going to die. Perhaps the fee would be waived. But he suspected that the fee would not be waived. This sort of thing must happen all the time. If the recently condemned weren't required to pay their fair share, the lot would bring in no money at all. He wished it were May. He'd always enjoyed writing about May with its confidence of daylight, the inviting lassitude of the sea. But it was not May. It was twelve days before Christmas, and the daylight looked no more certain of what it was doing than he was. Henry's Christmas columns were never his best. Dancing lights, hope and praise, the human hunger for realisation through the symbolism of outward signs, that sort of thing. He'd authored some terribly insipid ones in the past, though even worse were the inaccurate ones, like the piece about the song Guardian Angels, the one Mario Lanza had belted out so beautifully. Henry had always thought that the guardian angels were the bears and not the beings who shooed away the bears. His credibility had taken a hit in that one. This year, though, given his newly acquired station, he could write a piece about his last Christmas. It could be heartwarming, maybe even become a classic. He'd write a column about buying a last Christmas tree and then show it to his old mother in that frightful home she was in, and in that way inform her that he was about to die. He'd never been able to tell her anything straight out, and this was no exception. She might not be overly alarmed, being close to a hundred years of age herself and the one who was supposed to be dying though she never did. Between Henry and his home, a townhouse of no distinction, lay the only Christmas tree lot accredited by the town, which was managed each year with sturdy efficacy by Yolanda Piper and her at-risk charges. Henry swept decisively into the lot, apparently without signalling, as his fellow travellers fell in fury upon their horns. Five surly youths, wearing red raglan smocks and merry tasseled hats, turned toward him in astonishment. He exited the car and smiled broadly, his teeth creaking. Merry Christmas, he screamed. I love Christmas, a girl said to no one in particular. Santa Claus and all that shit. 
but I'm not as happy as I think I should be. Can you help me? I want the biggest and most beautiful tree you have, Henry declared. That one will do. He gestured toward a spruce thrust haphazardly in a bucket, its core a mandala of yellowing needles. Yolanda appeared, out of nowhere it seemed. The great essayist, she said in greeting. How's the bears? The tree had already been hauled from the bucket and thrown at the feet of a boy wearing tight peg jeans and a t-shirt. Yolanda was always provided with a youth from juvenile detention to fresh cut the stumps, which seemed to Henry quite redundant as far as the tree was concerned. The miscreant's duties also included trussing the tree in plastic webbing shot from a compressor for the journey toward its temporary final home. Yolanda, Henry said earnestly, Merry Christmas. A pine needle protruded from her mouth. Let me ask you something, Mr. Essayist. Do you think the trees smell as good this year? Oh, I do. They don't smell at all. Some beetle's been after them in the field. You're whiffing nostalgia, my friend. There were several lines of verse tattooed on the delinquent's arm, though they weren't called delinquents anymore, of course. Against his better judgment, Henry strained to read them. He shuffled closer. And silence sounds no worse than cheers after earth has stopped the ears. Hausman, on this blighted youth, he was so happy. Back off, creep, the boy said. This is in honor of my friend, not for creeps. He was an athlete, and he died young. Henry was beside himself. Here was a connection across the cruel and indifferent ages. Make this prevert back off, yo. It's pervert, Lawrence. How many times do I have to correct? She regarded Henry. Henry, she said. Yolanda. He was still somewhat ecstatic. How do you want your life to be remembered, Henry? The youth resumed indelicately sawing away at the stump. Oh, I have no illusions that it will be remembered, he said modestly. He looked down at his shoes. They were formal shoes, with his own feet concealed inside. This puzzled him for a moment. Why were you set loose in this earth, Henry? Do you have any idea? The shoes were really something. Shiny. Get out of here, Yolanda commanded. Go home and write about your buttercups, you foolish old man. He had never written about buttercups. Never. He had warmed over the dead gods of the months, and he had written about wasps a couple of times, wrung some wonder from contemplating their world of insectual intent. The papery nests, the cells of mathematical perfection, the nurses and the workers, the grubs that waited for transformation behind their silken doors, their black eyes perfectly visible. One column had been particularly good, something about wasps in the fall crawling into houses or garages to prolong their lives a little. In such a last retreat, was that how he had put it? But it is not meant that they should continue, their ingenuity is in vain. But that didn't sound like him. Maybe it was someone else who had written about wasps. He felt blue. He was dying, and the doctor, or whoever that had been, hadn't even given him a prescription to fill. Still, he felt fortunate that he didn't have that moribund-bound tree in his trunk. The teens at risk hadn't had an opportunity to stuff it in there while Yolanda was berating him. He drove reluctantly home. In the parking slot allotted to him in his townhouse cluster, two men had set up a card table and were soliciting signatures for a proposal to give a tax credit to households with guns. They had occupied this slot before, 
they seemed comfortable with the assumption that it was the ideal space for their endeavour and had assured Henry that this was but the first step of the process. After they had won the tax credit, they would petition for the elimination of taxes altogether because of the infeasibility of collecting them now that everyone had guns. They nodded manfully at Henry as he drove past. He had never admitted to them that paying taxes provided him a quiet pleasure. He turned back onto the highway to the indignant screams of horns and drove to Ambiance, the home where his mother resided. He would forgo waiting to tell her about his condition until he had written the Christmas column. He didn't want to write that column. He thought the place was called Ambiance, but the name never stuck with him. It was the banner in the lobby that had made a persistent impression. Just to be here is so much Rilk. Rilk. The things corporations got away with. His mother was a bit of a celebrity at Ambiance because her previous home had been destroyed in a flood. She and the five other occupants of Wing 3 in that place had been abandoned by the staff and when rescuers arrived a week later with bleach and body bags, they weren't at all prepared for what they found. There was no joy, just troubled amazement. The old people were alive, dehydrated of course. The new home his mother had been placed in was a continuing care facility similar to the one that had washed away though this one was constructed on a soccer field that had been built over a tailings-filled wash, which had once been the principal drainage for a mountain that had been topped for a dozen astrophotometrical telescopes. Since the personal effects of all the patients from the old home, not just the six left to rot on wing three, had been lost, the ambiance staff had placed in each new room framed photographs of attractive people enjoying lovely things. It was a generous, non-sui-generous approach that had worked out well. There were zero complaints, particularly since these photographs were shifted about weekly to create diversity and a fresh dynamic in each tenant's private environment. This had the added benefit management maintained of providing the professional caregivers with a little fun to keep their spirits up, for otherwise they'd be simpering. Who's the president? Who's the president? Every other time they entered a room. Henry climbed the great steps and entered the lobby. There was the banner, as commanding and insouciant as ever. He felt uncharacteristically bold enough to say to the receptionist, how awful to use Rilk like this. It's the risk poets run in their endless attempts to transfigure reality. Reality circles around and bites them in the ass. The receptionist was a man of indeterminate age with a skin disorder. His face was raw. The skin seemed quietly percolating. He dug at his jaw and regarded Henry. Henry closed his eyes. It was only a matter of time before a hole would create itself from the weeping slough of the man's face, presenting a glimpse of the preposterous fundamentals, rather like the truth window in a straw house. Do I have to sign in or anything? Henry finally asked. No, no, you know the drill. Henry fled, though he did not having visited infrequently to his intermittent shame, know the drill. After some difficulty, he managed to find his mother's room. She was sitting upright, wearing an elaborate flamingo-pink bed jacket with large padded buttons. She looked at him sympathetically as he searched for a place to sit. The room was cluttered, with most of the space taken up by a dark credenza upon which baskets and boxes and vases were stacked. He remembered the credenza, it had held table silver in his childhood, each place setting stored in its own pocket of cloth. 
In the curves of the massive thing, he had concealed his plastic soldiers. He'd had two favorites. One was poised to throw a grenade, the other had a flamethrower holstered on his bent back. Each had a bland face beneath a helmet. Henry extended a hand tentatively to see if they were still there, then drew it back. Better not to know. The photograph on the bedside table was of two blonde children throwing bread to a peacock. The peacock had turned from the mirror that kept it entertained in its pen toward the pieces of falling bread. Henry pulled an animal's travelling crate close to the bed and sat on it. There was a frayed leather identification tag on the grill of the crate. It had been chewed. We have to speak quietly, his mother said. Debbie's on the other side of the curtain there. She's into dystopian video games, and she's very, very good. Thank you, hon, came a frail voice. I didn't know you had a roommate, Henry said. I thought we, you, were paying for a private room here. I have friends, Henry. I suppose you don't. That does not surprise me. When you were a boy, the other children would draw a circle around you in the playground and tell you you couldn't break through it, and you couldn't. Perhaps that happened once, mother. Oh, it was more than once. The crate shifted beneath Henry and bumped the table, causing the picture to rock, though it did not fall. Do you know who these people are, he demanded, wanting to change the subject from that darn circle that had bedeviled him so. Of course I don't. Gertrude brought that in here, tried to make me think I had forgotten my own children. Gertrude's been in the business for years and hasn't suffered a single suicide, won't even permit us to stop eating. She says that no one must anticipate God's absolving hand. We call her Saint Gertrude. So you don't know who these children are, Henry said stubbornly. You think you're on your way to doing something and you're just stopping by for a moment. Is that correct? Yes, for a visit. Maybe he wouldn't tell her about his diagnosis after all. She didn't seem to be in a receptive mood. We pity visitors. There are just us Gnostics here and Goth Deb. We maintain that the world is an illusion the unconscious self is consubstantial with perfection, but because of a tragic fall it is thrown into a foreign domain that is completely alien to its true being. It's always a fall, a tragic fall, and here we are. That's it, in a nutshell. Goodness, mother, when did you come up with all this? The last coherent conversation he'd had with her had concerned some urinary tract infection. Yarn painting class. And sometimes when we do that low-impact foot exercise, thoughts come. Some consider Gnosticism flawed, an individualistic, nihilistic, escapist religion incapable of forming any kind of true moral community, but naturally we disagree with that assessment. Henry could not conceal his alarm. Oh, don't look so frightened. You were always such a frightened little boy. I stuck too closely to the recommended guidelines when I was raising you. You've never talked this way before, Mother. He felt the crate buckle a bit beneath his weight. Surely you realize that what we're saying here is very different from what you visitors think you're hearing, though I do wonder what's getting through to you, Henry. He had been allowed to shine the silver with a round, almost weightless sponge that fit perfectly into the tin of polish. 
he had been permitted to kiss his infant sister in her coffin. He had placed one of his soldiers beside her, couched in a pucker of silk. He had said that it was his favorite one, but it was not. It had never been his favorite one. I'm sure you were given the opportunity to learn a thing or two in this life, but the learning was so inappropriate to your situation that your not understanding was assured. Are you still writing those sappy articles, Henry? You sent them to me for the longest while. They were seldom subjects of discussion here. You wrote much that was regrettable. I'm a nature writer, he protested. The world has changed. I only try to provide something formally recognizable that people can take comfort in. His infant sister's forehead had felt like a feather. Your father and I always found the world to be unfamiliar, but it was the custom then to behave otherwise. We made every effort to reassure you and would have done the same with your sister had she lived. The door opened and someone cried, Who's the president? From behind the curtain came a weary giggle. With the door once more shut, the room resumed its pestilential pallor. A large crazed platter was displayed on the credenza. It had been brought out only on special occasions, whereupon Henry's mother would always say, Darwin married a Wedgwood heiress, which is why he could afford to think whatever nutty thing he wanted. There's so much stuff in here, Henry fretted. It's practically a fire hazard. What stuff, Henry? For a writer, you do choose words that lack evocative distinction. There was a harrow in the corner. A harrow? There couldn't be a harrow. It was just something he remembered, rusting behind a barn, a barn around which an addled old dog of theirs had worn a worry trail. There is no stuff, she continued. The trees are no longer trees, nor are the children children. You'll see. The credenza couldn't be here either, Henry decided. It had been destroyed in the flood. It was possible that it had been destroyed even before the flood, but it was not possible that it was here now. He felt better having arrived at this determination, though the credenza remained. Perhaps it thought it was a credence, and not a credenza at all, one that had fallen, in the manner of an unlucky angel, to the blasphemous station of a mere sideboard. Whatever it was, it was allowing him no quarter. Why is your mouth open like that, Henry? Are you thinking... Mother, I'm afraid I have some rather bad news. I'm going to die soon. According to the doctor, I'm dying. Just like you, he added unnecessarily. After a moment, she said, Oh, well. Take that, you fucker, Deb murmured behind the curtain. He wondered what the old woman looked like, though it was probably irrelevant. We were handed a very imperfect deal, Henry, his mother said. She sipped from a tall, fluted glass filled with a green liquid, the inviting color of antifreeze. Goodness, mother, is that a stinger? Yes, it is. Why do you look so aggrieved? As a child, you so often wore an expression of aggrieved expectation. You always wanted what someone else had. I certainly don't want a stinger, mother. I'm surprised they're allowed in here is all. Gnostics often use the terms drink or drunkenness to depict the pathetic fate of the entrapped spirit, but we don't take that literally. In any case, an exception is made in regard to stingers, Manhattans as well. 
Those things are crazy. Language, language, Henry. It's important to be precise. I had a stinger once, Henry said. I got so sick. He suddenly felt that he could make anything appear in this room, anything he wanted. His father's rack of pipes, the bird's nest he had destroyed on a dare, anything. His old dog, breathing heavily in dream. This was a magic place. He couldn't do it with words. He had never been able to do it with words. He looked around greedily. The cupcake that homely little girl had made for him in fourth grade, for he was homely too. The lake they'd lived beside once, its water on his skin. It was just a matter of control, of acceptance, of linking the two. Not difficult. Why had he not come here more often? He smiled and, raising his hand as if for further permission, just as suddenly realized that he could not make anything appear in this room. He had never seen that lurid bed jacket before. The buttons were as big as baseballs. He wished his mother had made more of a fuss over what he'd told her, or any fuss at all. But, as a rule, we depreciate matter first and foremost, his mother was saying. Only the knowledge that results in self-transformation is necessary. Resurrection comes first. Death follows after. Unimportant. One who does not know himself knows nothing, Henry. I don't feel well, mother. It may be one of those rolling heart attacks. Won't kill you, but makes you queasy. But, on a lighter note, here's my question. Do you think there's a moral weight to our actions? We're sort of divided in regard to that question here. There are those who think that the middling among us perish forever. Others feel that if we've performed our duties in a more or less decent fashion, we will continue to muddle on in some manifestation on an altogether different plane. Still others argue that it's perfectly acceptable to have confounded right and wrong throughout one's life and that there's not a sliver of difference between the two. I haven't an opinion, he said moodily. How desolate it was in here. A fluorescent bulb warbled listlessly above them. A pair of muddy gardening gloves lay at the edge of the coverlet. No, I do have an opinion. I think it's folly to wonder about these matters here, now, at your age. Folly, he emphasized. Was it the right word? It would have to do. His mother's face grew pale. She seemed about to cry. I suppose I'd select muddle on in some manifestation, he allowed. Regaining her composure, she once again regarded him with exasperation. The gardening glove slipped off the coverlet and disappeared in the dark, whirled pattern of the rug. I have a radical silence group in twenty minutes, she said, consulting a delicate watch on her bony, spotted wrist. Goodbye, Henry. But I just got here, he muttered. Still... He clumsily vacated the animal crate, jostling the framed picture again. The representation didn't seem to be the same. There were similarities, many similarities, but... What did he know of the peacock? It is thirsty, always thirsty, and its tail is not a tail but a feathered train, a magnificent and seemingly unnecessary train. This didn't seem much to know. Will you be able to find your way out, his mother said. He nodded, somewhat stung by her dismissal, and exited into the hallway, which was empty and cruelly illuminated. On a monitor, news of the weather scrolled by. The winds were moderate. They had no special names. He felt oddly that he had been robbed, and that the robber was within him now. Even so, 
he would have to find the lobby, avoiding the receptionist if possible, then brave the outside, where there will be darkness and steps to navigate. That was Colin Barrett reading Stuff by Joy Williams. The story was published in The New Yorker in July of 2016. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Colin, the story opens with something that's it's almost like a New Yorker cartoon or it's, it's sort of slapstick joke where the doctor tells the patient he's going to die of cancer soon, then says, oh, look, I looked at the wrong file great news, you're going to die of cancer even sooner. <laughs> you know? At the same time, it is, as you were saying, an arguably realistic moment. It's sort of credible. So how do you think Williams pulls off that blend of realism and, and absurdism? It would be really easy for it to go wrong. You know, she does it throughout her work. She does it again and again. It's not that every story is a version of the same story or every book's a version of the same book, but, you know, she has this sort of matrix of obsessions that she sort of circles around. And I think she's not afraid to um, go again and again to these scenarios. You always find something new there when you go again and again uh, back to certain subjects. And, I mean, all of her stories are about death. Yeah. You know, which is the most obvious hackneyed (laughs) subject matter (laughs) in the world. But, like, you know, she... She pulls it off again and again. Um, at a certain point in the story, when Henry goes to visit, certainly by the time he's gone to visit his mother, but, but again, when you reread it, you realize from the very beginning, you know, we've already stepped past some invisible threshold, you know, yeah. even before the story started. She has written a story called The Revenant, and I feel like I think all of her stories could be called The Revenant or something like that, you know, <laughs> just characters inhabiting, you know, this threshold world or some sort of... Uh, you know, purgatorial world. Limbo. Yeah. 
it's where you always are with 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 one of her stories. It's always fascinating the the way she's able to to pull it off. Yeah. Do you think of the story as as a kind of farce or a satire or metaphysical discourse? Yeah, I all mean, all those it's, things. All those things. I mean, I th- I think she's definitely a she's a religiously contoured writer, um, and a, you know, not not in any kind of conventional Christian way. I don't think, but but um, that's definitely there. You know, and those sort of investigations, uh, she does it seriously, um, but you know, filtered always through through that absurd, oblique eye that she has. Mm. Henry is, he could be a straight up satirical figure in the hands of another writer. Um, and, you know, fun is probed at him and, and he is sort of, he is aware enough of himself to, to sort of, you know, be residually aware of his own sort of lingering ridiculousness. What I really like about Williams and what distinguishes her from a lot of other contemporary writers She's never just straight up making fun of any of her characters or anything like that, you know. Um, there is a sincerity to her writing, and it's not a self-serious as, at all, but it's, you know, she kind of gives them the dignity of her characters, no matter how abject or eccentric they are. She depicts their world from, from, from their point of view, in a sense. And it, so it kind of makes sense that this kind of ridiculous guy, and he, whatever it is, whether it's a death dream or whatever it is, when he goes to visit his mother... Um, I feel like I'm dying myself when I'm reading it, <laughs> you know. It's, it's really there, and, and I don't know if you make it out the other side of the story, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love the fact that she made Henry a, a, a writer, a sort of, as you said, mediocre writer. And that it, the, There's that hilarious moment when his first thought on coming out of the doctor is, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And his second thought is, but I could do a really great last Christmas column. <laughs> I, I can get a column out of this. <laughs> yeah, It's material. Um, one thing that stands out is is the way that she has him just continually anthropomorphizing the weather in mm. his writing. You know, that's sort of the confidence of daylight, the lassitude of the sea. Mm. Um, do you think do you think he's just you know a weak writer who's constantly relying on pathetic fallacy, yeah. or is that it's her little trick of easing us into? A world that's essentially an emotional landscape, you know, that's not yeah. a, a little wink to us to say, actually, you know, this what's around him may be more psychological or emotional mm. than real. It's a general trend in her writing. She writes really beautifully um, about animals and as well mm-hmm. as about landscape. And I mean, her her writing on animals is just. Uh, extraordinary um she presents them in all their sort of like alien equanimity they kind of just haunt the edges of there i think there's got to be an animal in every story she's written again they're kind of revenants they're sort of between worlds and they kind of seem to have some sort of uh not even insight but some sort of uh they've reckoned they you know they exist in the world. They've reconciled to the terms of their existence in a way that none of the humans have managed. And yeah, human consciousness is just this sort of, it just infects everything. So the pathetic, you know, every every person is wandering through this landscape and they see themselves in everything. They see themselves in animals. They see themselves in, you know, yeah, in like, um, you know, Henry with his, you know, his two little toy soldier action figures that he loves, <laughs> the one with the grenade and the one with the rocket launcher. And um, and he pretends that there's another toy soldier he loves that he buries with his infant sister. She's such a great landscape writer, and it's all, it's you know it's tried to say they're always inner landscapes, they're always landscapes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, a filter through it, through it, always through a, a human consciousness. But um, again, I, I love I love getting lost in them. They're all you know they're often sparsely populated, but they contain these totemic figures, whether they're animals or whether they're plants or whether they're you know forests or or, or whatever, um, yeah. or just the brick of brack, the crap of life, the gardening gloves that that fall exactly. off the edge of the table towards the end of this story and, and get lost in the whorls of the of the rug. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's so disconcerting. <laughs> and, and before we get into that completely unreal landscape, there are these signposts along the way, you know, those sort of fake family photographs that have been yeah. <laughs> put in put in her room or even even before that, just the idea that, that what Henry writes about even he knows it doesn't really exist anymore. You know, Yolanda tells him he's just whiffing nostalgia. Mm. Um, and and part of the reason he's liked is because he doesn't tell anyone that <laughs> none of what he writes about really exists anymore. Yeah. Um, there's a sense of a sort of willing oneself to see things that aren't necessarily there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a motif in the story and it, it really ramps up once... He's in that room with his mother, which is that you know he, you know he begins to believe he has a, a temporary delusion that anything he thinks of will manifest in this room, that you know it will be generated and it will be there, like this credenza that can't possibly be there because it was apparently destroyed years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I read the story several times in preparation for for the podcast, and and as with all of William's work, I mean it's you know it becomes more vertiginous and you become more less sure-footed the more you reread i'm convinced he's been you know that he's at some sort of <laughs> way station by the time the story started the whole thing is threaded with like motifs of of substitution and of some sort of secondary reality uh, or al- alternate in place of an absent first like even his doctor isn't his doctor it's it's yeah. some sort of intern um he has two two favorite toy figures and he he buried one with his infant sister, and um, the woman playing de- de- Goth Deb playing uh, <laughs> dystopian video <laughs> games, who's who's apparently his mother's roommate. This world that Henry's in is populated by these sort of secondary, alternate substitutes for some missing first person, mm-hmm. and obviously his his infant sister, who passed away. And what do you think happens when he gets into his mother's room? Why does the world start to swirl in that way? Well, you know, he's he seems to have entered like a pocket universe, and his mother yeah. is is it his mother or is it a Gnostic angel? You know, it's funny. <laughs> like y- Yolanda Piper is described as an archon and as an intercessor yeah. early yeah. on, so she seems related to his mother in some way as well. Um, so and Henry's being he's being judged. He's been judged. He's always been judged. Yeah, Um, and uh, she seems to ask him a question. I I don't know why. (laughs) When he goes there, he's he's he seems to have gone into some sort of antechamber to the afterlife. But uh, his mother asks him the question: Does he want to? Does he want to muddle on, or not? And uh, he says he'll select muddling through for the moment. So back out he goes. Yeah. You know, it's a thing that recurs so much in, in William's work is that. Um, so many of the stories features people like Taking Care, an honored guest, two really famous ones. And Taking Care, the main character is a pastor, his wife is dying, but she doesn't die at the end. Um, and an in, in honored guest, spoiler alert to everyone, uh, there's something <laughs> similar with a, with a teenage girl and her mother. Um, and again, it's, it's such a fascinating thing, and it's, it's no less settling, you know, 
just having a character clearly killed off at the end, there's some sort of, there's always some sort of closure with that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And Williams never quite gives you that closure. She always leaves it open. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a far more unsettling, uh, you know, place to leave the reader. Well, we don't at the end of the story really know if Henry's still alive or if he has entered this strange afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. We don't. <laughs> and I, I was trying to, I'm trying to figure out the significance of the Stinger cocktail that his mother is drinking, which is he said he had once and he got violently ill. And yeah. he said it looks like antifreeze. So I don't know. One of my working theories is he's, he's killed himself by drinking antifreeze, but who knows? <laughs> God. Well, the, and then there's that, you know, banner of, of Rilke <laughs> from Rilke's Ninth Elegy hanging across the, you know, lobby of the nursing home. And if you if you look at the poem itself, it somewhat has all of the themes of the story. I mean, I just have a little bit of it here that says, but because truly being here is so much, because everything here apparently needs us, this fleeting world, which in some strange way keeps calling to us, us the most fleeting of all, once for each thing, just once, no more, and we too just once and never again. But to have been this once completely, even if only once, to have been at one with the earth seems beyond undoing. Um, it's almost like a taunt because <laughs> Henry's never been at one with, with anything, it seems. You know, he was stuck in that circle that he couldn't step out of. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the positioning of that in this kind of entryway to whatever limbo he finds himself in. Um, Ambiance. Yeah. <laughs> seems, it's, it seems both a joke and, um, and quite cruel. Yeah. There's a cruelty there, but I still, th- I still think, you know, William's always, yeah, no matter how abject some of her characters are, no matter how much they are the butt of some sort of cosmic joke, as we all are, she just takes care to paint their perspective to me so sympathetically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's it's not it's not sentimental humanism. It's not any kind of his one relationship we're given in this story is with his mother. She's almost like this, as he repeatedly says, "You don't sound like yourself. You're not taught. You know, you've never talked like this way before." His mother mm-hmm. may not may not even be his mother. Henry yeah. Henry might be confusing the bears and the angels. She's sort of the the ghost of Christmas past. Yeah, she's you know she's an angel or an archon of some kind, and um, the the world of objects. I mean, it's it's uh, the world of material things. He, he, I mean, I think it's good to read a story and to be to not be sure where you are with it. But I mean, it is it it does seem to be about Henry has been asked a question. You know, is it time to go? Or maybe he's been told it's time to go, but. He's also asked by his mother, you know, do you think there's a moral weight to our actions? Mm. And um, he's not given an answer. He doesn't give an answer. I mean, it's interesting if he's if he's being told he now needs to reflect. I mean, the only the only sort of moral uh, issue that arises in the story is that he feels guilty because he doesn't visit her enough. Yeah. Um, which minor on the the list of moral yeah. crimes in life? No, I mean he doesn't. Know? He doesn't seem to have. Uh, you know, he doesn't seem to. Uh, I mean, his, his again, his his only sin is is sort of he's sort of contented to be a kind of you know quote unquote med- mediocre writer or whatever um, yeah. writing for this community paper. But uh, the Zephyr, for for all that, yeah, I mean the the question will still weigh on you at the end of your life, no matter how ostensibly uh, yeah. correct it's it's been. 
There's that line at the end where he, he sort of says he feels he's been robbed. What has he been robbed of? You know, sort of robbed of the satisfaction of feeling that that at least his mother will mourn him? or <laughs> Yeah, he'd been robbed and the robber was within him now. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Somehow it's, you know, life has been taken away from him and he hasn't taken anything from it throughout there is just that there's that sense of um of yeah of like of sort of the first or primary or you know the correct or good life was somehow is somehow already gone it's already been taken away or removed and you're left with a consolation and um you know all, all you know i suppose it's in its own way, it is. It would be. It will be a terrible thing to get to the end of your life and maybe feel. I mean, who do, who won't have felt like they're being robbed? And you never got to have the canary. And you never, you never <laughs> got to have the canary. Just the book about it. You never got to have the canary. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, his final exchange of words with his mother, where you know she says goodbye, Henry, and, and he says, "But I just got here," <laughs> and she says, "Will you be able to find your way out?" Yeah. Um, amazing. I I was looking on online to see how people responded to the story when it came out, yeah. and and there were just an amazing series of descriptions of it. You know, one person said a terminally ill journalist deals with a variety of setbacks. <laughs> <laughs> Another one said a dying man prepares to write his last ever Christmas newspaper column. <laughs> you know? Um. A writer for a local paper has lived a very cautious life and at the end of it realizes that even his own mother is bored of him. Hilarious attempts to summarize a story that just resists it. I really wanted to read a Joy Williams story, but I mean, I'm always kind of reticent to talk about it because, about a work, because it is so, I mean, it's, it is just so hard to describe. You know, it's, it's really hard to say what they're, <laughs> you know, to definitively say what a good Joy Williams story is about, other than, yeah. you know, the most intuitively obvious things um yeah and uh death and mortality and all that but i mean she's like kafka i mean if you could figure them out if you knew exactly what they were about you know they wouldn't be as fascinating yeah absolutely well i really appreciate you doing this thank you so much for uh, for having me on deborah Joy Williams is the author of four novels and five story collections, including The Quick and the Dead and 99 Stories of God. Her most recent book, The Visiting Privilege, New and Collected Stories, was published by Knopf in 2015. Colin Barrett is the author of the story collection Young Skins, which won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award and the Guardian First Book Award in 2014. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2015. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Dana Spiota reads a story by Joy Williams. Or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Kala Leah of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.